1: have a Bible, turn with me, if you will, this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. I'll obviously say a whole lot more about that in just a few moments. Dr. Aiken, thank you for your kindness to me and letting me be a part of the Southeastern family. I've been here for 18 years now, and it has been uh, the greatest honor in life to serve along brothers and sisters in the Southeastern family and to receive students each year into our college and our seminary uh, and to see all that God is doing in our life together is a great and wonderful joy. So I count this as a privilege. It's very humbling to stand here today and to preach God's word. So I count it an honor. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter four, you might be wondering if you were here back in the fall when I preached earlier, I preached from 1 Corinthians chapter one. Let me clarify. I do read other books of the Bible. And occasionally I even preach from other books of the Bible. But uh, I know you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, all evidence to the contrary. But 1 Corinthians chapter 4, there's a reason I'm here. Uh, In short, pride and arrogance have probably been for me the sins underneath all other sins. And it's because of those types of sins that I've struggled the most over the years and I've watched other people struggle as well. And with an eye towards seeing all of us trained up, sharp, prepared, and blessed by God as we go out to serve him. I want to speak today about that issue of pride. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 4, here in this passage of scripture, the Apostle Paul lays the wood to the Corinthian church for pride and arrogance and division in their life and commends to them humility. And so I want us to look today, starting verse number 6 through verse number 13. Would you read along with me this morning? The Apostle Paul says this to the church of Corinth. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, and that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already full, you're already rich, you have reigned as kings without us, and indeed I could wish that you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles last, as men can m- condemned to death, for we've been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Are we weak, or we are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now." Let's pray together. Great God, we pause before you this morning to acknowledge you as the king, the creator of all things, the one whom, as the scripture said a few moments ago from the Psalms, that Lord, when you look upon the world, the world trembles. When you touch the mountains, they fill up with smoke. And Father, we we acknowledge you as the great and the mighty one, the one that has given us life the one that has given us grace, the one that has given us salvation, the one that has given us us the great calling in Jesus Christ to serve you, the one who has gifted us, equipped us, who's prepared us and provided for us in all things. So Father, we acknowledge you. We ask for your grace, for your mercy. We pray that you would help us, that you'd strengthen us, that we would crucify the flesh, our arrogant passions and desires, And that, God, we would walk humbly before you in all that we do. So, Father, we give ourselves to you in this hour. We ask your blessings. I pray that, God, you'd help me as I speak this morning. Give me accuracy and precision with your word. And, Father, we pray that you'd use us to encourage and to conform us to the image of your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I had gotten saved at about 18 years old. And the night that I got saved, I could tell you that God was immediately starting the work of calling me into ministry. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't have categories for that. I didn't know anything about callings or anything like that whatsoever. But one thing I knew is that after I came to faith in Christ, I knew that I would spend the rest of my life doing this. I just didn't know what this actually was. It became fairly apparent pretty quickly that God had gifted me and given me talents to speak in certain ways. I'd stand up, I'd share my testimony, God would seem to use it. I'd stand up and I'd preach and God would seem to use it, much to my surprise. And as a young 18-year-old fired up for Jesus, filled with passion, gifted by God to do that, I began to preach. And I began to preach a lot. I can remember it was about six months into this. I was a member over at Bayleaf Baptist Church and I can remember one Sunday morning I had preached and it seemed like it had gone fairly well and everybody was coming up to me afterwards. They were congratulating me. They were patting me on the back. They were saying all kinds of wonderful things to me. And I can remember this one gentleman in the church named Sonny Shelton, very esteemed in the church, revered, respected by everybody. He walks up to me with this somber look on his face and he has just a few simple words for me was this. Be humble. And I gotta tell you, it slightly offended me, if I'm honest with you. I thought to myself, what does he think I am? Some arrogant little jerk that's full of myself? Something like that? Well, I've learned over the years as I've gone through ministry and as God has blessed that at times I can be an arrogant little jerk sometimes. And it's that pride and it's that arrogance that's frankly led to all other sin in my life. And Paul speaks about those kinds of things to the church of Corinth. In 1 Corinthians, scattered throughout this letter, you find the Apostle Paul humbling the church of Corinth, reminding them of who they are in Jesus, what they actually have of themselves and what they actually don't have of themselves, and encouraging them all the way through to let their confidence be in Christ and let their mission be in Christ, not their own ego. Such is the case in this passage of Scripture. And so what I want to do today is actually fairly simple, and fairly straightforward. I wanna juxtapose, I wanna compare and contrast if we can for just a few moments, the wise servant and the foolish servant. I wanna say three things about the foolish servant and I wanna say three things about the wise servant. Or about the true servant so that's what we're going to do today but before we do that let me do a bit of exegetical framing now starting off in verse number six there's two little puzzles here about what Paul is saying to us so let me just deal with verse number six and then we'll jump into that comparison and that contrast for just a few moments Paul says two things in verse number six that seem to be somewhat difficult for us to make sense out of exegetically. The first one he says, the very beginning of the verse, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and to Apollos. What exactly does Paul mean by this when he says these things I've figuratively transferred to myself and to Apollos? This seems rather strange. Well, if you go back through the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, you read the things that Paul has been addressing to this church, you'll notice a wide variety of things. Chapter 1, he speaks to them about their arrogance and their hubris. And ultimately their need to be esteemed and their need to sound wise. And he says to him in chapter one, this is what I preached on back in the fall, that listen, God chose the nothings. God chose the nobodies. These are the people that God has raised up to confound the wise. And so he says that in verse chapter one. In chapter two, he talks about spiritual wisdom. In chapter three, he talks about sectarianism and how it's carnal, and how it divides the church, and how ultimately God's people cannot succumb to this type of sectarianism and this type of division. He goes on in verse number five of chapter three to talk about how there's watering, there's working, and there's warning, how Paul and Apollos both played a vital role in the preaching of the gospel, but that ultimately it was God who did the work. He uses a bit of a farming metaphor. And so all throughout this, in these first three chapters, he's been making these points, these spiritual lessons about humility and being united, not divided and all of those things. And often he uses metaphor to do it. So verse number six in chapter four, when he says these things, he's referring back to all of those lessons, these lessons that he's been teaching for the last three chapters. He's been teaching them metaphorically. And now he says, I'm talking about me and Apollos. What you see in me and Apollos is not a sectarian division, but rather the perfect union of God's people working as the body of Christ. This is, by the way, where he's going to go with this in chapter 12 and chapter 14, that ultimately the people of God work harmoniously when they work properly. Apollos and Paul, there is no division there. So that seems to be what he's getting at in in the beginning of verse number six. The next statement he makes in verse number six is a little more puzzling. He says, I've transferred these things figuratively to us for your sakes, that you may learn in us. And here's the puzzling statement, not to think beyond what is written. Now, what in the world does Paul mean when he says that? Well, essentially, if you go to the commentaries on this, here's what you're going to find. There's no agreement whatsoever about what he means by this. In fact, most of the commentators kind of throw their hands up at this point and say the exact meaning of what Paul is saying with that phrase is probably lost on us forever. At the same time, they all tend to agree that what Paul is ultimately saying here is that the Corinthian people thought of the Christian life in ways that were outside of Of the teachings of the Old Testament In other words they were being unbiblical And he wants to challenge them about that And the clue for that is The very next thing he says is So that none of you will be puffed up So there's a little bit of an exegetical Ambiguity there that we don't know But the general point that most commentators agree Paul is trying to humble them And help them Not think of themselves In these robust grandiose ideas So verse number 6 A bit of exegetical framing Now let's look at the foolish servant and the wise servant that Paul speaks of here from verse number 7 through verse number 13. Let me just say three things about each, starting off with, of course, the foolish servant. What is it that makes a foolish servant within the body of Christ? Well, Paul says a couple things. Number one, the foolish servant elevates himself over other people. Look at verse six, what the, what, uh, verse, uh, the end of verse number six. He said this about the figurative transfer. He said this about not thinking beyond what is written. But the purpose of all of that, whatever it is that that means prior to that, at the end of verse six, he makes very clear. Here's the point. Here's what he wants to get across to them. That none of them may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. In other words, what he does not want to see happen in their life, what we should fight against in our life, is the tendency that we have to elevate ourselves over other people. You know, it is a mark of a true weak person, a truly weak person, that the only way they can feel significant is to tear somebody else down. When you hear somebody going about tearing other people down, you can almost always bet that there's an insecurity, an inferiority complex at play when that kind of thing is going on. This is what the Corinthians were doing. They had received Christ. They had been born of the Holy Spirit. God had given them spiritual gifts of various kinds, but now all of a sudden the Corinthian church begins to elevate themselves, and in particular, some believers in the church begin to elevate themselves over other believers in the body of Christ, thinking that they're superior to those with quote-unquote lesser gifts. In particular, it seems to be those who spoke in tongues seem to elevate themselves over other people. Paul's saying very simply this. This is not godly. This is outside of what is written to us in the Old Testament. And we should not be puffed up on behalf of one or another. Listen, folks, it is our tendency to tear down others so that we can elevate ourselves. I see it in us. I see it in the disciples, in particular, Luke chapter 2, verse number 21 through 27. Don't flip, just listen to what the Bible says. Now, Luke breaks this down into different chunks here. I start with one preceding chunk, verse 21. Jesus said this to them. This is as he's telling them about how he will be crucified and raised the third day. He says, but behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me. On the table, Judas is there with him. And truly, the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. He's saying to his disciples simply this, I'm about to be betrayed. I'm about to be tried. He's already told them that he's going to be crucified and raised the third day. Verse 23, upon hearing this news that Jesus is about to be betrayed and arrested and ultimately crucified, verse 23, here's the disciples' response. This is staggering to me that this is their response. One would think that if Jesus says to them, hey, I'm going to be betrayed, that ultimately they would have great concern for him, that they would have great concern for his kingdom. But is that their concern? Absolutely not. Listen to their concern. Then they begin to question among themselves which of them was going to do this thing. It's you. No, it's you. No, it's you. No, it's you. And then, verse 24 Now there was also, listen to this, a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. You catch that? When Christ is saying to his people, I'm about to be betrayed, I'm about to go be crucified, what they actually care about in that moment is not the well-being of their Lord, is not the well-being of his kingdom. What they actually care about the most is their own status. What they care about the most is their position in the ranking. There's a tendency in us to tear others down so that we can elevate ourselves. It's present in the Corinthian church. It was present with the disciples. It is present within me and it is present within us. Listen, that's the mark of a fool. That is, plain as can be, the mark of a fool, that we would be concerned with our own status above that of the well-being of the church, Christ, and his kingdom. So number one, the mark of a fool is that he will elevate himself or herself above other people. Number two, a fool is someone who thinks that his or her talents or gifts come from us and not from God. We tend to think we're fools if we think for a second that my talents originate from me, that my gifts originate from me. Look at what Paul says in verse number seven. Who makes you differ from another? There are spiritual gifts in the body. Some a gift of wisdom, some a gift of knowledge, some a gift of faith, some the gift of speaking in tongues, some the gift of prophecy, some the gift of interpretation. All these various gifts, there's different gifts in the body. Paul asks the question, who made you differ? Who is it that made me good at one thing and you good at another thing? And of course, the answer to that question is not you and not me. The one who gives me the gifts that I have and the one that gives you the gifts that you have is almighty God himself. Look at the next question he asks in verse 7. And what do you have that you did not receive? Absolutely nothing. Now if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You know what Paul is trying to say to the Corinthian church? Yes, you're different from each other. Yes, there are gifts and talents that each of us have that differ from each other that are designed by God for the building of his kingdom and the edification of the body. That's why God did it that way, as we'll see here in just a moment. But what the Corinthian believers thought is that they were special in and of themselves, that they somehow were to take credit for their own giftings. And what Paul is reminding them of here is very simply this, and it's a reminder that all of us need. Listen, if you're smart, praise God that you're smart. You didn't do that. God could just have e- just as easily made you an absolute idiot. Are you a good speaker? God could have made you a bumbling, stammering fool, but he didn't. What you have, listen to me, what you have and who you are for the good is not because you did it. God gets the credit for those things and only the fool will believe that somehow he or she is responsible for the production of those good gifts. We are absolutely fools if we think that we are the ones to take the credit for this. Listen to what Paul says elsewhere, just a several chapters later, chapter 12, verse number seven through 11. He says, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Listen to this, verse 11. Here's the point. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills what gift do you have whatever the answer to that question is here's the point you didn't produce that you don't get the credit for that therefore you do not boast in that it came from God unto him and only unto him may the credit praise and honor be we are fools if we think for a moment that we are the ones responsible for the gifts that we have. You know, thirdly, verse eight, let me move on so our time doesn't get away. Thirdly, the fool exalts himself prematurely. So the fool is the person who comes along and elevates himself above others. The fool is the one that thinks his talents come from himself and not from God. The fool is also the one that elevates himself prematurely. Here's what we mean by that God does something great in your life, and we're fools if we think that because of that gracious work in us and through us at that moment, that we have sort of arrived, quote unquote, at spiritual maturity. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, he's mocking them, he does not actually believe they're full. He does not actually believe that they're rich he does not actually believe they've reigned as kings but they think that and so now he mocks them in verse 8 you're already full you are already rich you've already reigned as kings without us and indeed I could wish that you reign that we also might reign with you what is he talking about here this seems rather odd well, in the Christian life, when we're born again, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter one that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit inside of us. At that moment, we partake now of spiritual gifts, spiritual blessings, spiritual union with Christ. There is this sort of already and not yet that takes place in the believer's life. Already I am in Christ. Already I am filled with the Spirit. And yet not, it's not yet the case that I'm at full maturity here. The Corinthian believers were foolish enough to think that because God had given them certain gifts and had used them in certain ways, that they had arrived at spiritual maturity. You think to yourself, well, I would never do that. Well, we have a propensity to do that. Here's how it happens in our life. You came to faith. You begin to serve God begins to pour himself out on you. God's given you gifts and talents. And when he adds his blessing to it, good things happen. And we become fools enough to think that just because God has used us in a certain way, that we are therefore spiritually mature. We confuse giftedness and divine blessing with godliness. But we must remember that God uses people like Samson. God uses people like Jacob. God uses people like Moses. God uses people that are filled with errors and flaws. Listen, just because God's hand may have been upon you at a certain point and used you to a certain degree, it does not follow that we've actually achieved spiritual maturity. This is what the Corinthian believers thought. God gave them gifts. They exercised those gifts. God was using them and therefore they believed that they were all grown up and that they had arrived at spiritual maturity. But indeed, but indeed, they still had a long way to go as the divisions in their body evidenced, as their sectarianism evidenced, as all of the deficiencies and all the problems in the Corinthian church were evidenced for, these people still had a long way way to go. Hey, here's something that ought to scare us. It genuinely ought to scare us. It is possible for us to be in sin, deep sin, and God still use us in certain ways. Boy, wouldn't it be easy and convenient if God didn't do it that way? Wouldn't it be a little a little easier for us in some ways if God wouldn't put his spirit upon us unless we were totally clean and totally pure and all those things, but that's just not how it works. I mean, who would God use? There'd be nobody. There'd be nobody to do that. And so God uses beings like us that are still flawed, that still have sin present in our life. God uses us in those moments. And it ought to scare us just because God's using us. It does not mean that spiritually speaking, everything is okay. And this was the tendency that the Corinthian believers had verse number eight. So as a result, Paul says to them at the beginning, right before the passage I've read to you, first Corinthians four, verse number five and six, therefore judge nothing before the time. In other words, the evaluation of my life is still pending Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. In other words, my evaluation is still yet to come. You cannot draw the verdict about my life just yet or your life just yet. There's coming a time when all will be brought to light. And so therefore, I must still keep myself in a posture and a disposition of humility before God. So much for the fool. What about the wise? What about the true servant of God that Paul speaks of here in First Corinthians chapter four? Well, again, let me make three separate kinds of points about the true servant or about the wise servant. Number one, the true servant celebrates diversity of gifts and values other servants. It is the mark of true Christian maturity that a guy or a gal can see God using someone else, building his kingdom through them, and maybe even elevating their platform and rejoice in that because of the good for God's kingdom. It is the mark of immaturity when we get worried about that and nervous about that, when we jockey against each other on that. Listen, the true servant will be one that celebrates the diversity of gifts. You know, here's a particular way I think that people like us struggle with this. Can I just shoot straight with you? I think sometimes in a place like this, a seminary like this, where we specialize in our topics. I'm a philosopher. I'm looking out. I see some of my colleagues here that are Bible scholars, Dr. Mosley and Dr. McKenzie uh, and a host of others. See Dr. Kellum in the back does the Greek and the Hebrew. I don't do that. And I wish that I did. I do philosophy. I do quite a lot of philosophy. We have theologians and we have counselors and we have the wide spectrum of disciplines represented in our midst. There's a tendency sometimes for each of us to somehow think that our discipline is the most important discipline, right? That my work is actually the true work. That mine is the most important one. When in fact, within the body of Christ, you have an ear and a nose and a mouth and a hand and a foot and a knee. Listen, it's the body of Christ. There need to be those men and those women in the body of Christ that can do the Greek and the Hebrew. There need to be those men and women in the body of Christ that can do the biblical counseling. There need to be the people in the body of Christ that can think deeply about the faith and gain understanding. There need to be the people in the body of Christ that are experts in evangelism and things of that nature. Listen, it takes all of us and the true servant will be one that celebrates this. Verse verse six once again. He says he wants that none of us would be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 20 through 25, verse 20. But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Verse 24, listen to what he says here, verse 24 and 25. God has composed the body, having, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. In other words, the picture of the body of Christ is quite beautiful, And when we see that picture, it is a picture filled with diversity and yet unity at the same time, where God has raised up very different people with different gifts, talents, and skills. He's added his blessings to those things in a variety of different ways, and yet he brings it all together for one purpose, and that is the fame of his son and the evangelization of the nations that we would go. And build his kingdom. So, as a result, the true servant will be one who celebrates the diversity and values other servants within the body. Number two, the true servant will be someone that embraces the lowest position and is selfless for Christ. Look at what he says in verse number nine through verse number 10. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles. You have elevated yourself, but you know what he's done in the life of the apostles? He's made them low. While they are lifting themselves up, God was making the apostles low and lower and lower. He says, last, we are men condemned to death for we have been a spectacle to the world, both to the angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise. You can hear the sarcasm there. We are weak, but you're strong. Again, you can hear the mockery. You are distinguished But we are dishonored. Again, setting beside the foolish servant and the wise servant or the true servant, we see a pretty radical difference. What is it that we see? Well, the true servant is one who's willing to make himself low and take the lowest positions for Christ's sake. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 2. In a place like this, we love passages like that, right? Lots of fun theologically. This is one of the great Christological passages where we get one of the clearest statements about the deity of Christ. But did you know in that chapter, that's actually not the point that he's making? Yes, it is true. Everything he says about Christ there, yes, it is true that we can use that passage to fill out our Christology. But the point that he's actually making is about how you and I are supposed to live right? He uses Christ as an illustration to that point. How is it that I'm supposed to live? And how is it that you're supposed to live? Listen to what he says. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, think about life this way. Think about life the way Christ thought about life. Think about your ministry the way Christ thought about his ministry. Who? Being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, meaning he had a rightful claim to divinity. Verse 7, but he, the divine one, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man. Listen to this. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Paul says, let that mind be in us. That's the point that he's making in Philippians chapter two. Jesus said it this way, Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 through 26. If anyone desires to come after me, and these are words that we teach to our little people in Sunday school, but they are words that must be seared into our own minds. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, And follow after me for whoever desires to save his life will lose it whoever loses his life for my sake will find it for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul or what will a man gain in exchange for his soul what is Paul saying the true servant is one who's willing to humble himself or herself for the kingdom of God and for the well-being of his people thirdly and finally about the wise true servant true servant The wise, true servant remains faithful even in hardships. Listen to what Paul says in verse 11 through 13. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. For Paul following Christ and serving Christ was certainly not a life of luxury, of fame, or status. In fact, it was a life of tremendous hardship. In the present hour, as he wrote these words, he was hungry. As he wrote these words, he was thirsty. We're poorly clothed, he says. We're beaten. We are homeless. As he writes these words, we labor working with our own hands. What a hardship. But now listen to what he says here. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. That means we encourage. We've been made as the filth of the world, the offscoring, that means the refuse of all things until now. But they were faithful. Listen, the mark of a true servant is someone that even when it's difficult, they're faithful. Difficulty for us and difficulty for Paul may look very different. We're tried in a variety of ways. Maybe you're going somewhere to a part of the world where you may face the very kinds of things that Paul says to us here where there's homelessness and there's famine and there's thirst or there's disease or there's persecution or there's war or there's tension. Maybe you're gonna go pastor a church where people behind your back might manipulate, hurt or scheme against you may try to take your knees out from under you or something like that. Maybe you're not in vocational ministry at all. Maybe you're just a faithful servant within the body of Christ. Here's the thing, folks. If you're being faithful to Christ, you may very well face hardship. And it is the mark of the faithful that even when those hardships come, we remain faithful to Christ in all things. So what do we do with all this? Let me just ask you to close this morning by asking a couple questions. Number one, What person do you look like? When we walk through this text together, we see what he's saying to the Corinthian church. What person do you most look like? The foolish servant who divides and elevates and somehow thinks that because God's used you on one occasion that you've arrived at spiritual maturity? Or the true servant, the the wise servant, who recognizes these gifts come from God and has a posture of humility? How do you compare yourself to others spiritually? When other brothers or sisters around you excel in certain things, what's your response? When you see another brother or sister struggling in sin, do you elevate yourself and think of yourself better than them? Do you assume the highest positions, seek the highest positions or the lowest positions in your church, your family, and your relationships? Do you show grace? Do you show love? Even when others don't, show it to you. Listen, our grace and our response cannot be conditional. It must be based off of what Christ has done for us and to us, not what others have done to us or for us. So how do we respond in these things? What is what is Paul saying to us? In short, just a couple things. God has blessed us in a variety of ways. He's called us his sons and his daughters. He's called us to serve him. He's gifted us and equipped us to serve him. But those gifts come from him. They do not come from us. And therefore, our posture before God must always be one of humility and gratitude, recognizing that the source is him and not us. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and faithfulness to us. Thank you for these students for Southeastern and the good times that we get to have together studying, worshiping, and serving you. I pray that, God, you'd use this word today to challenge us, to encourage us, and to conform us to the image of your son. We love you, and we give ourselves to you in Jesus' name, amen.